0: You're listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. This is issue number six, Community is a Practice.
1: When I was first asked to do an issue of attention on community and architecture, I was pretty overwhelmed by the possible scope. For the last 10 years, I've worked on the intersection of social movements and architectural education. In this process, I've encountered a huge range of practices and practitioners who could be said to engage the question of community in some way. The way many people think about the relationship between community and architecture is that there is a simple substitution. Instead of an individual or institutional client, the community is the client. But the move isn't that simple. Community is not found fully formed and ready to represent itself in the design process. What becomes clear from looking at community design in practice during the 1960s and 70s is that architects actually have to participate in defining and determining the spatial boundaries of the communities they intend to support. Importantly, The institutions they participate in also play a major role in this process. While the other episodes of this issue focus on a formative period spanning from the 1960s to the 1980s, in this introduction, I want to frame and contextualize this period of intense debate and institution building. I do this by describing how architects engage the question of community in two other significant moments that preceded and followed it. In the first part, I'll briefly describe some of the ways practitioners today talk about community and architecture, especially as it relates to how they imagine participatory processes. In the second part, I'll talk about concepts of community in late 19th century Europe. With the help of Suzanne Cowan, I'll argue that our current approaches and vocabularies first began to take hold in Europe and the United States during this period. Snapshots of each era don't capture the full picture of architects' complex engagements with community over time and in these different national contexts. Still, they're useful to understand the important shift that happened in the 1960s and 70s and what it means for those who engage in these questions today. To begin to understand the ramifications of this shift in working methods and how it might be relevant to practitioners today, I spoke with a few present-day community designers. The first was Jeff Howe, the director of the Urban Commons Lab at the University of Washington. Howe is one founder of the Pacific Rim Community Design Network, which brings together architects, planners, and landscape architects committed to participatory design methods. His work has included everything from designing a tool-lending library with community activists in Taiwan to programming and designing a Seattle park with multiple generations of Asian diaspora. Since the 1990s, he has trained students and faculty across the world to engage with local questions of cultural and political significance using tactical urbanism and participatory design methods. In his numerous books on democratic practice, public space in the city, How described the fluid and flexible ways he sees socially conscious designers approaching their work. When asked how contemporary designers engage the question of community, How made this statement.
2: As architect and designers, I think we tend to focus on actual physical space form, uh, things like that. So we identify that as the things that need to be designed, right? But I think there's, uh, in my more recent work, and also I think that there's an emerging movement right now, on social design, right? So the social process is something that we need to be looking at as, as well as part of the design kind of enterprise. And that has just as important in terms of impact and uh, ramification as the actual design of physical space.
1: He went on to give the following example of what designing process might look like.
2: For example, there is a uh, landscape architect in in Japan, Yamasaki. One of his early and and ongoing projects was design of a large scale kind of regional park. The the size of the park was such that it's really hard for the local government to maintain because it's it's so big. Uh, So what he ended up doing was that he trained a group of people uh, to program the park. So local people to figure out how to first program the park and then design a park. And then because these are the people who came up with the program, they have a sense of ownership of those spaces. They ended up becoming the caretaker of those spaces as well. And so the social design process uh, become process of not only engaging the people, but also designing the park and then later on kind of managing and maintaining the park.
1: This brought to mind something written by the landscape architect and community advocate, Randolph Hester. In a 1989 publication based on a survey of contemporary community designers, Hester concluded that any claim that environmental design could directly create community was a myth. Here's Hester reading from this piece.
3: Although it's clear to me that community designers cannot create community, They can design physical settings where people can come together. And more importantly, they can create a process that nurtures the social sense of community.
1: Well, this seems like a slippery territory where the designer's expertise and methods are perhaps no longer needed. Most designers from this generation actually took the opposite lesson from their experiences. What many concluded was that there were concrete methods and techniques that help support the transfer of power from experts to community members while still granting economically disadvantaged communities the benefits of professional design services. At stake was the cultural values that these techniques operated within. User surveys, community workshops, and post-occupancy evaluations helped community designers decenter their own expertise in favor of a more collective and often consensus-based approach to design decisions. This included giving users a voice in determining whether or not a project was successful. Despite this, some commentators, including Carl Anthony, the subject of episode 4, continued to ask whether community designers should or could actually escape long-standing patterns of power and privilege that continued to uphold white European priorities. One aspect of this was the conservative nature of the institutions around which the profession revolved. These included architecture schools, professional organizations, and design media, all of which still favored the individual's contributions over those generated by a collective. These questions are still very much in play for community designers today. Last year, I spoke with Maria Sykes, director of the Epicenter, a community-based design center that sponsors cultural programming and builds affordable housing in rural Utah. Sykes is part of what you might call the third wave of American community designers. These designers came out of school during the Great Recession of 2008. The lack of jobs forced them to look around for alternative professional opportunities. With the model of the Auburn University Rural Studio as a guiding light, this generation sought meaning in underappreciated parts of the United States. This included small rural communities long neglected by the urban focus of design activism. This generation as a whole has been forced to find their own theories and methods of practice. This was partially because community design faculty and coursework were erased from many architecture school curricula during the 1980s and 90s. Many architecture schools shifted their priorities from community work to formalism, creating a gap in the transfer of knowledge between teachers and students of community design before and after this period. In our interview, Sykes described how the Epicenter, which was founded in 2009, gradually built community trust and developed techniques for involving and listening to community needs. Here, she described their process as a form of design research. For example, using artists to engage directly with townspeople. Here's Sykes.
0: Artists have allowed us to engage the community in more thoughtful ways, and even the graphic design projects as well. If they're community-based, the process is definitely more important than the final product in most cases, and it's definitely our our research um, is how I like to think about it. So, if we're creating. A community-sourced publication. Of course, that final product is going to be really beautiful because of the graphic designers that are working on it with us, but the process of getting to know the the teenagers that are working on it or what they want to focus on and what they discover through through writing and interviews or whatever, all of that just comes back as institutional knowledge for, for Epicenter.
1: Listener can hear Sykes articulating a similar point to Hester and Howe. Three generations of community designers agreeing on the importance of process, though each deploys the term in a slightly different way. In Howe's case, a participatory process ensures appropriate programming and long-term community stewardship. For Hester, it builds a social sense of community, creating the foundation for balanced interactions between economic, ecological, and political needs. For Sykes and her colleagues at the Epicenter, gathering information through surveys needs to be supplemented by the work of artists who help the community concretize their core values across generations. These, in turn, contribute to institutional knowledge that can then be translated by designers into environmental change. There's plenty of overlap between these approaches, but they don't all follow exactly the same logic. Community design encompasses a number of theories of practice and also concrete techniques, but it's not reducible to theory or technique. Rather, community design as it exists today is highly contextual, and it's focused primarily on the relationship between actors. It's notable that community design as process design is not the only way that architects have historically defined their relationship to community, nor the only way it's discussed today. Before the 1960s and 70s, community was almost always associated with a particular spatial territory, a village parish, for example, or most common in the modern era, a neighborhood. This understanding of community was espoused by most architects and planners in mid-century North America. They imagined a deterministic relationship between a community, its sphere of influence, and the bounded spatial unit of the neighborhood. Architects, social scientists, and government planners alike assumed that neighborhood populations could thus be addressed as a coherent whole. This was despite the fact that demographic changes and fissures along lines of class and race often undermined this ideal. The strong association of community and neighborhood persisted through the radical 1960s and 70s, and it's still used today, although the dominance of this concept has been eroded by social and technological changes, as Jeff Howe points out. Here's how.
2: Neighborhood is still a very important spatial unit, and it's a scale that is great for building communities, for people to be connected to one another. But I think nowadays, there's a different way through which communities are organized. They could be organized online via long distance. These kind of relationships are not no longer defined within a particular kind of spatial scale. One may argue that in some way that undermines the uh, neighborhood structure, but the example that I've seen recently is that the tools are actually complementary, especially yeah. in that weak neighborhood, that neighborhood that doesn't have you know, sufficient resources or are depopulating or undergoing economic struggles. But those neighborhoods could actually use some help from people that are networked differently. So volunteer that can come and help with the younger people in education in access to technology and things like that and i see uh, a way for these different networks to to intersect that this kind of place-based community together with this network-based community and then looking at this the other way around that these place-based community can provide a venue for this network-based community to have opportunity to meet face-to-face, to to be connected to a particular location that generates a particular kind of dynamic that this kind of network-based community don't often have. So I see a possibility for these kind of new connections to be made in a way it hasn't been made before.
1: While community designers today tend to work at multiple scales, of which the neighborhood is just one, it hasn't always been that way. In part two of this episode, I'll discuss how the unit of the neighborhood became central to how early 20th century architects sought to shape good communities. I'll conclude by describing some of the issues and exclusions this has engendered, and how designers since the 1960s have reframed process as a territory unto itself. Contemporary designers use many of the same spatial concepts that prior generations of designers have used to talk about community. These concepts at times hide the fact that any physical boundary, be it the borders of a rural county or a neighborhood, may fail to capture the social sense of community as defined by the people who live, work, or otherwise lay claim to that area. These individuals may or may not have a shared culture, bonds of trust, or common aims. In practice, community designers often encounter conflicting interests within and between the communities in which they work. How then have historical ideas of community reconciled this contradiction? And is it really the role of the designer to decide where the source of a real or authentic community lies? To better understand what's at the root of this tension, it's helpful to consider how today's framings build on and respond to approaches from an earlier moment of social and political reorganization, the late 19th and early 20th century. Cowan describes how methods of community design changed from the 1950s to the 1970s.
0: We see this interest rise during the 19th century in the relationship between design and social issues modernizing and industrializing societies are going through a lot of changes. We start to see the rise of industrial capitalism, uh, urbanization, the decline of rural populations, and these are creating huge upheavals that are exacerbating existing problems like poverty and crime and creating new problems like the dehumanization of labor. And so architects want to understand how they can use design to try and address some of these social problems. There are a lot of philosophers outside the design profession who are also interested in this idea of social problems and the kind of changes that are taking place in society. One of the social theorists who's starting to question these changes is Ferdinand Tonys, and he's a German theorist, and he writes a book called Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, which translates into English as community and society. And in this book, he starts to explain this distinction between traditional community and modern society. Gemeinschaft or community is the social interactions that take place, particularly in a rural village where everyone knows each other and they have dependencies on one another another because of the way that they live so closely. contrasts that community with gazelle shaft or society which relied upon impersonal rules, laws, bureaucracy to try and create unity within a diverse and large community. And so in the 19th and 20th century many architects look back to these rural communities as Tony's described as a model for how to address social problems and to encourage more social harmony.
1: In the late 19th and early 20th century, utopian proposals for new communities included communes, philanthropic workers' villages, and garden cities. All of these used planning and architecture to try to make good communities that could serve as models for a good society. Some of the themes of this era included housing built from inexpensive and supposedly hygienic materials or methods that meant the housed workers could build structures themselves. Many also relied on scientific analysis to determine the appropriate proportion of people to agricultural land or social services like laundries or schools.
0: The type of community that architects are envisioning in the late 19th and early 20th century that can revive this older traditional form of community are built around certain design features, particularly a certain scale, often modeled on the rural village. When this becomes an urban environment, that rural village is translated into the scale of the neighborhood. The scale at which you could walk from your home to public places, where you could know most of your neighbors, where you might share communal institutions like a church. Later, these get translated into more modern types of institutions like a community center or a
1: school. Cowan goes on to distinguish between ideal or romantic ideas of community formation and the actual economic underpinnings of society in the late 19th century.
0: Some of these early experiments, like the model industrial villages, were intended to improve the quality of life of the residents who lived there, but it did not change the overall social relationships. And so while there was a nostalgic view of the medieval village as helping people to live closely even if they were from different classes. In reality, there was not a sense of connection and community between industrialists and their workers just because they lived in walking distance to each other. So I'd say some of the power relationships that may have been romanticized in these visions did not play out in reality. Those Landlords were extracting extreme wealth from the labor of their workers. And so I think that a lot of the 19th century theories ignore the economic realities of feudalism and also are not completely realistic about the economic systems that they are working within.
1: One prime example was the architecture and industrial design of the arts and crafts movement. Cowan notes that the same disconnect between nostalgic ideas and economic reality troubled the work of William Morris and other well-known designers of this era.
0: And so, for example, the arts and crafts movement hoped to make handcrafted furniture that would allow for a humanized labor and that would allow for goods that would be available to the masses. But the reality was that the furniture built by most arts and crafts designers was for the wealthy, that it was expensive, and that mass-produced furniture, which dehumanized labor, was more affordable. So a lot of these uh, ideals did not connect to the economic realities that they existed within.
1: This long history is important for this issue because it brings up questions about how a given community is defined. What makes a good community and how do we evaluate this? What ideals, ideas, and values of community are at stake and who gets to define them? And how do economic and political systems shape or even undermine designers' visions of community life? During the 20th century, a number of influential Americans built their theories of community on the precedent set by European thinkers like Tonys and Morris. One of these was the American literary critic and urban theorist Lewis Mumford. Here's Cowan.
0: So, urban theorist Lewis Mumford was one of the most influential proponents of the idea of designing communities, and particularly communities which could balance the benefits of modern life with the social cohesion that he claimed had been present in more traditional village communities. And so in the American context, he's looking back to the New England village as the model of American community that we should strive to recreate and encourage to continue into modern life. So in the 1920s, as America is going through suburbanization, we see Lewis Mumford proposing certain ideas of community which would harken back to those older forms of village life and that would try and recreate the social closeness and scale and uh, public spaces that were included in those earlier villages. One place that we can see this is in the film The City, which is based on one of Mumford's books, and it has images of new residential developments like Radmer, New Jersey and Greenbelt, Maryland.
1: Mumford illustrated his concept of urban communities in a 1939 film that was first shown at the New York World's Fair as part of its City of Tomorrow exhibit. Narrated by the actor Morris Karnowsky, the film argued that modern planning could make semi-pastoral life and the community connections that it fostered available to all Americans. To do this, it contrasted the smoke and congestion of modern cities with the greenery and abundant space of suburban planned communities. The audio clip from the film that you're about to hear is accompanied by footage of a group of children riding their bicycles along winding paths. These snake through neat single family homes to a community school, a small pond, and a grocery store. At every turn, we see small groups of men and women at work and leisure, all offering welcoming smiles.
3: This is no suburb where the lucky people play at living in the country. This kind of city spells cooperation. Wherever doing things together means cheapness or efficiency or better living. Each house is grouped with other houses, close to the school, the public meeting hall, the movies, and the markets. Around these green communities, a belt of public land preserves their shape forever.
1: In this brief clip from the film, we can hear a kind of modernist positivism. That is, if the environment is designed just so, then community will naturally follow. One of Mumford's goals was to use city design as a mediating factor, something to negotiate between the needs of the individual and those of society as a whole. Similar to Tony's, he found that in modern society, people were individuated and, as consequence, adrift from strong connections either to moral order or the natural world. Mumford often discussed the relationship between the scale of communities and political outcomes. Here's Mumford speaking in 1972 at the Center of the Study of Democratic Institutions, sponsored by the Fund for the Republic. He titles his speech Authoritarian and Democratic Techniques.
3: Democracy consists in giving final authority to the whole rather than the part. Around this central principle clusters a group of related ideas and practices with a long foreground in history, although they are not always present or present in equal amounts in all societies. Among these items are communal self-government, free communication as between equals, unimpeded access to the common store of knowledge, protection against arbitrary external controls, and a sense of individual moral responsibility for behavior that affects the whole community. Democracy, in the primal sense I shall use the term, is necessarily most visible in relatively small communities and groups whose members meet frequently, face to face, interact freely and are known to each other as persons. As soon as large numbers are involved, democratic association must be supplemented by a more abstract, depersonalized
1: form. In this speech, Mumford argues for what he calls two techniques. The first is organized around systems which are powerful but unstable. The other centers on small groups of people. The second formation is weak but resourceful and durable. Ultimately, he concludes that democracy must rest on a system-centered collective, a system in which there is no single leader, but which acts against the forces of dehumanization and alienation. Mumford's influence on public opinion and architects is well documented. Carl Anthony, the subject of episode four, closely followed Mumford's writing and corresponded with him towards the end of his life. Anthony was inspired by Mumford's metropolitan perspective and the way he elevated the idea of community within both urban and ecological landscapes. That said, Anthony came to criticize the white, Eurocentric perspective embedded in Mumford and his generation's approach to planning and architecture. Anthony and other community designers expressed deep concern about how foundational planning concepts such as good community perpetuated white supremacist assumptions. This included ideas about ideal family structures, the morality of certain types of labor, and the neutrality of dominant institutions. All these assumptions, they argued, resulted in significant social and economic inequality. As Molly Estev documents in Episode 4, Anthony spent his life exploring other traditions. These included those he discovered in Harlem and on his travels in Africa. He asked if these might offer socioeconomic and environmental justice for black and brown communities, along with a more balanced relationship between all humans and the natural world. As a result, Anthony expanded on the work of his lifetime friend and colleague, Carl Lin. I'll talk about Lin in episode two. He moved away from a focus on neighborhood-based communities and towards the concept of urban commons. The modern use of the term commons has stretched and shifted, beginning with the eugenicist propaganda of human ecologist Garrett Hardin in his 1968 book, Tragedy of the Commons. More recently, we see the concept associated with economic self-sufficiency, political liberation, and community ecological management. In 2015, the sociologist Marcus Kipp and his colleagues defined commons simply as being made up of three components a resource, a community of people who rely on that resource, and a set of institutions devised by that community for regulating that resource. I find this definition helpful when considering community design. The actors we consider in this issue move away from a particular scale of action and instead focus on the practice of institution building, resource creation, and collective management. Their work cannot be seen on a plan marked out as a territory and space but rather it's grounded in negotiation and experience. Joss Sayers, an environmental psychologist who has documented Anthony's legacy and who's featured in episode 4, inspired us to delve deeper into these aspects of community design. Here Sayers comments on how the Black radical tradition questions architects' insistence on spatializing communities around particular territories. This is especially true for neighborhoods defined by stable institutions and public spaces. What this misses, they argue, is that even in the midst of forced movement, a sense of community nonetheless persists.
4: There was a lot of movement in there, and for me, that very much connects to the Black radical tradition and the Black Atlantic and this conversation about displacement as a source of value, and not in the capitalistic sense, but in like, you know, displacement as a place where we can gather a sense of place. In experiencing displacement, you learn that you, everyone needs and has community, and it, it's not going to be able to be, for a lot of people, in that, like, nice childhood home where they had access to the park and they lived their whole lives and their generations and generations of family there, or not being able to trace your ancestry, like, things like that, like, inform, like, how we, you know, how we define community. And I think can offer a lot of counter to kind of extractive capitalism's demands of, like, choosing the land and gathering what can be gathered from the land. And also counters, like, this kind of nimbyism that allows for waste to be dumped in someone else's neighborhood because we've moved. You know, I have to hold space for the fact that I have been displaced. I probably will be displaced. All of this land is all of ours in that sense.
1: Clearly Sayers imagines community differently than modernist designers and planners but they also go further than many community designers might by foregrounding the ways in which community can be based on relational and interpersonal connection rather than a fixity of place. Like Sayers, the episodes in this issue look at history as a wayfinding device for community work in the present. Many of the historical dilemmas discussed in this issue reverberate with contemporary debates about community design and the social and political role of the architect more broadly. Questions from history continue to be asked. Can community designers rely on mapping, surveys, and other abstractions to gauge community need? And if so, what assumptions are coded into their translations? How can designers best engage the experiences and knowledge-making practices that define the lived experience and future visions of marginalized communities? Each of the following episodes highlights the enduring tension between process-based definitions of community engagement and those defined by rigid spatial boundaries. In the 1960s, those in power used maps and territorial boundaries to define urban renewal areas, enact redlining, and subdivide rural land for exclusive housing developments. Today, real estate developers wield these tools to rebrand urban neighborhoods and accelerate gentrification, while cynically performing forms of community participation such as public meetings. Each episode in this issue shows how different community designers have located community not in territory, but in the complexity of practice and lived experience. Perhaps the territory most in need of mapping is the process of design and community engagement itself.
0: You've been listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Issue 6, Community is a Practice. Episode 1 of Issue 6 was researched and written by Anna Goodman with contributions from Kurt Gambetta and Suzanne Cowan. It was directed and produced by Anna Goodman. The episode was edited by Kurt Gambetta and Joseph Bedford with post-production assistance from Ethan Curtis. Music for this episode was provided by Jessica Jones. Thanks to the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts for their generous support.